Hello and welcome to the GM Cancer Podcast. I'm Steve Bland and this is the podcast that takes you inside cancer services right here in Greater Manchester. Now this is the fourth and final episode of our series looking at the cancer workforce and in this episode we're talking all about some of the new and exciting roles that are being piloted and trialled and worked on right here in Greater Manchester. In part two of this podcast we'll be talking about physician associates but before that it's all about cancer care coordinators. Now, in a moment, I'll speak to Julie Moran, who's the lead nurse for the Denton PCN, and uh, Tracy Cobham, who is a cancer care coordinator. But, uh, but before I speak to Julie and Tracy, I've got uh, Louise Ratu, who is the project manager for the cancer care coordinator pilot, and I've got Martin Turner, who is the PCN lead. Welcome both. Right, who wants to kick us off then about about what this pilot's all about then and why you know why this role is needed so there's an increase increasing number of cancer survivors across greater manchester it's fantastic uh, but along with that comes sort of an increase in the number of cancer patients needing that holistic support um so we piloted the role of the cancer care coordinator in secondary care and, and it really took off um providing that holistic well-rounded support that personalized care support um, and so we decided then to pilot it in primary care networks instead. Um, brand new role, never been trialled before, to provide that that personalised care support and obviously links in with the NHS long-term plan as well. Um, so we wanted it to be a boundary-spanning role to really bridge that gap between primary and secondary care because currently that communication, it, it doesn't happen as well as it could have done, really. Um, and sort of build greater links with the community as well so getting the cancer care coordinators to signpost patients out to the community and um, rather than keep you know keep them coming back into the GP practices for support um, so Tracy as you'll hear from later um, provides cancer care reviews um, which is a um, supportive conversation with a patient Tracy's role is to provide that safety netting role so if patients aren't getting that two-week wait appointment if patients aren't being seen you know quick, quickly enough Tracy can be that point of contact for patients to go to to ask those specific questions but also after a cancer treatment being delivered um, Tracy's there as a, as a role to for patients to come back to to have the cancer care review um, and to provide that supportive conversation with patients. So if they've got any concerns, any worries, whether that's financial support, psychological support that they require, you know, Tracy's that that role to provide that really, and therefore relieving the pressure off the clinical workforce who would have maybe perhaps previously done that role. Okay, Martin, um, what's the what's your kind of role in this all? Uh, this whole process yeah so so my day-to-day -day job is i'm a practice manager but i'm also a primary care network manager um, based over in tameside um, and tameside were one of the areas which first recruited some of the primary care network uh, cancer care coordinators so we recruited two back in april last year um, and there's two pcns within tameside that work together so in staley bridge and zenton two separate pcns but actually we joined this project together at a similar time and felt that the project worked better by having um, the support of two PCNs and two new coordinators together since it was a new role. Um, what I find day to day and what the actual care coordinators bring to both practice and PCN is um, sort of building on patient relationships. So that's going above and beyond what GP practices would do. So GP practices would have, you know, their core services, the GMS contracts. They have a responsibility, of course, to look at referrals and symptoms and cancer screening. But having that additional workforce within the PCN allows it to go a little bit further than just what the expected is. 
So what I mean by that is, um, if I take cervical screening, for example, national targets 80%, quaff targets of practices are 80%, practices will basically aim for 80%, but having a cancer care coordinator allows us to look at that 20% that perhaps isn't always getting uh, looked at or some of these inequalities so that we're not stopping when we hit the target, we look above and beyond. So that's just sort of one example that I've witnessed over the last year that coordinators have sort of brought into practice. Um, it does relieve a bit of workforce pressure as well. So the cancer coordinators do undertake sort of the 12-month reviews as well, which would otherwise have been GPs or other healthcare professionals. Um, and that sort of builds on the relationships that the coordinators have had with patients. It then leads up to the point of the 12-month review. Louise, who was doing all this kind of stuff before? <clears throat> or, was, or was a lot of this kind of missing in the process? Yeah, good question. Technically, GPs were, were doing the cancer care reviews before the cancer care coordinators came into post or or nurses who were able to, to undertake the cancer care reviews as well. So quite often, they would, these patients would be or would have the cancer care review in that appointment, whether they've, you know, after a cancer diagnosis, essentially. So just in that conversation and quite often, you know, GPs would just tick, tick the box as what, from what we understand, um, obviously that's, there might have been a supportive conversation, but the cancer care coordinators bring another level to it because they do a separate standalone appointment with that patient to really get into, lack of a better phrase, the nitty gritty of, you know, understanding, you know, what's important to them, providing that personalised care support for that cancer patient um, so, so that, so the the care and support is is dedicated to them you know it's that it's those personalized little touches that make all the difference absolutely and I've got a perfect example of I actually spoke to a patient the other day um who'd had a, a cancer care review I did a one-to-one interview with her and she actually told me that one of the cancer care coordinators went above and beyond for her she was really struggling getting to appointments because her husband had COPD and they really needed a blue badge um now that's something that is perfect for the cancer care coordinator to help support with. Mm. So I know that cancer care coordinator went above and beyond to get the correct forms that they need to, to fill out, um, supported the patient to fill out those forms, make sure that they correct and, and send them out. And, you know, quite quickly, she got the blue badge. She was able to attend her different hospital appointments where she was going to three different hospitals across Greater Manchester and park in a disabled bay. And so her husband can come with her to the appointments, which was really important to her. Um, and that was just... Uh, an example of where that personalised care has shone through and where a cancer care coordinator has gone above and beyond for that patient. What a rewarding job, Martin, it must be. To, uh, we'll talk to uh, uh, Julian Tracy in a moment, but what a rewarding uh, a job that must be to, you know, be able to pick up all the little bits that maybe, you know, before, you know, maybe not fell through the cracks, but, you know, weren't picked up by somebody. Yeah, definitely. And it's reassuring across all of our workforce and GPs, um, I think like Louise was saying, would have previously picked up the work, but perhaps the cancer care coordinators as an additional workforce has allowed that sort of time and that passion to be invested into the extra little bits and pieces, not just doing the necessary medical stuff, not just doing the referrals, doing the symptoms, doing the reviews because they have to do them. It's actually taking that extra time, taking you know, going above and beyond, looking at the extra bits, the bits that mean most to patients, all that personalised care. And yeah, it's been really rewarding to see sort of some of the patient outcomes as well as some of the staff outcomes as well, what staff have noticed, um, the benefits of having the coordinators. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually, isn't it? I I imagine uh, they take an awful load off 
off GPs, off off other people that maybe did try and pick up these bits yeah, before. Yeah, absolutely. So in one aspect, it is taking you know uh, releasing capacity by doing some of the work themselves, but. Um, within PCNs and since obviously the shift in the NHS structure last year, it's all about sort of integration. So we found that the cancer care coordinators at the heart do try and integrate all the services that are available locally within primary care and secondary care. So things like social prescribing is heavily linked into um, and some of sort of the extended hours and things like that that we've now got access to. Right. So uh, we're going to bring Julie and Tracy in now. So Tracy, you're a cancer care, uh, care coordinator. I am indeed. And Julie lead nurse at the Denton PCN yes okay so how uh maybe uh, uh Tracy first just explain you know, from your perspective you know what the role involves well for me um it's first and foremost there's sort of three three layers to the to the job I've got a can the cancer care reviews which are the 12 month holistic needs assessments really um, and that's the face-to-face option or telephone uh, depending on the patient's preference and we hopefully it's a face-to-face because I think you, you get both of us get more out of it um, and sit down and, and chat for normally I give that an hour but that's a you know that's a dedicated hour um, to them for them to talk about anything that they want to talk about anything that they want to bring to the table um, and then the second layer is early diagnosis, so that's looking at the screening figures in the six practices uh, that I'm involved with and how we can improve those screening figures and encourage people to attend their appointments, um, whether that's uh, cervical screening, breast screening or bowel screening, three national screening campaigns. Um, yeah, and then obviously focusing on early diagnosis and making every contact count. So whether that's, you know, going out with my colleagues within obviously the primary care network, we've got frailty care, complex care, housebound patients. So it's it's whether it's connecting up with my colleagues and maybe uh, with di- patients with diabetes, have they attended their screening? It's, it's all those kind of, yeah, make, you know, make every contact count really. And Julie, how does Tracy support the practices and the patients from your perspective? From my perspective, it's around that holistic care and having that one individual who has the time to sit and talk and give the patient their full time. Um, And I think the different, we look at inequalities as well um, across the whole of the the network, their footprint. And like Tracy says, the difference for the team may hold a learning disability event and Tracy then becomes part of that event and looks at what is needed around screening or you know, how we can target people and, and meet the inequalities, which if, if without Tracy as a cancer care coordinator, the team as a whole, the health and wellbeing team, wouldn't probably address cancer care within the other events that we hold. But it's all those little things like we were talking about before, the little things that maybe you know don't fall through the cracks but they're quite hard to pick up and give that really personalized care unless unless that's your job to do that i think for me when somebody's diagnosed with cancer mm. it changes it's a lifestyle change it's a whole entire it's a shock and you've got that initial shock then you go through the journey with your cancer and you want you don't want to be telling your story 
over and over again. So it's crucial that holistic needs assessment that somebody gets all the elements in in, and that one person is your go-to, I think. And I think that is where the cancer care coordinator is absolutely the crucial, the linchpin about a whole cancer journey because it doesn't necessarily mean you've got all your clinical people, you've got your secondary care, you've got your consultants, you've got your treatment, you've got your radiologists. But actually... You need to know who to go to on a day when you don't know who to go to. And that cancer care coordinator will be that person that you pick up the phone and say, this is my concern today. And Tracy and cancer coordinators will then signpost them in the right direction, have that conversation and just alleviate a lot of the, the stress and the trauma that a cancer diagnosis brings. To Tracy, what does the average day for a linchpin look like? Oh, linchpins are very busy. Um, <laughs> basically, um, for me, it could be a cancer care review in the morning, um, following up anything that comes from that that review. So whatever the patient's needs might be or whatever concerns that they might have, and that might include, you know, following up a consultant secretary for an appointment, um, it could be results, it could be anything that they're worried about. And then on the other hand, it could be a financial worry. So it might be, you know, I'm on the phone to the DWP, you know, direct work and pensions. So anything that comes from that. Um, but then also you've got, you know, you've got carryovers in that week, really, that you're also following up. Um, it might be organising a screening session at one of the clinics, um, extended access, uh, anything like that. So, and working with the team on what what we've just discussed, um, you know, trying to sort of look at the inequality situation and see where screening might fit in. Um, so that you know, and that, I think that's the great thing about this job is that no day is the same because no patient's the same. So you you know. You, you've got that spectrum of just life happening every single day and it's great it's a really really rewarding job i was going to actually ask that it must be so rewarding to be able to you know pick up the pieces around the edge that kind of makes it sound a bit less important than it is but you know what i mean the little things that i know firsthand they're so important in knowing who to go to knowing that someone on the end of the phone is going to sort something out for you you know those you know seemingly little things aren't aren't little to patients and I think also as well it's the confidence that they that they get from you with their with their with the problem solving it's their problem seems immense to them Um, but then when you can break it down and say no this is doable this is fixable that you can actually literally see you know the weight off their shoulders that somebody else has taken control of it you know, they don't have to worry about. That's one less thing for them to worry about in what is a can be a very worrying situation. You know, so that's the, that's the reward for me is that I go home at night and I think, you know, Mr. and Mrs. X will sleep better tonight because yeah. of that. Um, so yeah, Louise, how does a job like this come about? Because the NHS, I don't imagine it moves very quickly, and a lot of you know a lot of things that people maybe see and say, "Oh, we could do with some of that," or we you know we need more of that, or someone needs to be picking up that. But then, how does that become an actual job or a pilot? How does that happen? Oh, where do you start? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know workforce is a bit of a challenge across the NHS. I mean, I don't need to go into details there, um, but I think 
over more recent years and especially after the COVID pandemic we've seen the importance of in communication especially between primary and secondary care and having that person with a single point of contact so it's come about from a national piece of work that HEE were involved in um, about uh, knowing the importance of the cancer support worker role. It's so varied. I think there's over 50 different titles of cancer support workers at the moment. You've got cancer care coordinators, cancer support workers, cancer navigators, pathway navigators, MDT coordinators. I could literally go on for the next five minutes if I needed to. But I think we needed to have a role standardised for specifically for cancer because we we know how important this personalised care is for cancer patients. So we were really fortunate that HEE uh, were very generous to giving us some funding along with their partner Workforce Collaborative and then Macmillan got involved as well because I think the word got out about how brilliant this pilot could be and that's why we've been really privileged that we've got nine now that we can pilot. And we've collected a lot of data, so we understand it is a pilot. Not everything's going to go smoothly and according to plan. Um, But we're collecting a lot of data from the cancer care coordinators at the moment, which will feed into evaluation, which we're hoping we'll be able to promote and raise awareness of this role so other GP practices can have it across Greater Manchester and possibly nationally as well. So what have been the learnings so far in the pilot? Are there any, I mean, you probably haven't come to the end, so you're not entirely sure how it all kind of maps out, but... Are there any things that you've you've definitely seen work, don't work uh, so far? I think that's a really good question. Maybe Tracy might. <laughs> well, I, I think, don't know if there are any things, yeah, any things that kind of jump out. I think after my interview with uh, one of the patients the other day, you know, I asked, would, could you see this role having a benefit in other GP practices? And the answer was yes, definitely straight away. And they could actually see the benefit of having this role for other longer term conditions like COPD, diabetes, having that specific person that people can go to. Um, I think other learning outcomes is we are... Um, touching base with health inequalities wise so making sure that everybody has access to screening whether that's cervical whether it's for breast patients colorectal we are accessing everybody in the community and um, so nobody is 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 left out really um i think tracy's done such a fantastic job some of the patient feedback that we've had a the cancer care coordinators will send out a survey afterwards to the to the um, patients and we've had 90% of patients which is about 120 have said that they are extremely satisfied with the service that they've received and the other 10% fairly satisfied so <laughs> I think I'll take that as yeah, well and I think okay, isn't it? their patient feedback speaks for itself to be honest as to how effective the, the pilot's been. Tracy would you add anything to that anything about you know the way that the pilot's gone like your role <clears throat> you know how it could evolve? I think that's the exciting part really is that I think, and I think Louise would probably agree with me here, is that we're in a slightly different place to the one we started off in in April last year. It's it really has evolved. It, it the roles fleshed out because I think because we're sort of super focused, laser focused on on the cancer environment in our in our particular area, be that Tameside or Bolton or Berry, wherever the cancer care coordinators are, we've had the time, along with a lot of the training that we've done, but we've had time to focus on things and see where the gaps are or where things might need tweaking as far as the flow of that, you know, that that journey that the, the, the cancer patient's on 
Um, so I think, yeah, that that's been the the the, the real positive for me is that it's it's an evolving, you know, role, um, and that makes it exciting, and and you know great to be part of and credit where credit's due uh i work with some very flexible cancer care coordinators as well who are uh, always at the end of the phone to change the way that we're working or to work a slightly different way or have an updated log book sent through to them every month yes. so um i think that comes with the job role being flexible and approachable as well but um yeah, yeah i guess it's part uh, of it's been uh, great. Uh, being a, involved in a pilot first of all but actually martin it's the job as well isn't it you know i imagine the job yeah, Tracy would probably say the job involves a massive degree of flexibility as well. Yeah, absolutely, it does, and it's I think like Louise was saying, it's credit to the actual individuals that we've taken on board. Um, you know, have to be passionate about the role, and, it, and it's definitely demonstrated. And hopefully, we can sort of reward that um, as well. So I think the pilot was set up quite cleverly that with the role being a care coordinator position, a care coordinator course is one of the um, additional roles that PCNs are allowed to sort of fund through the R scheme. So it's we sort of safeguarded the sustainability of the role for future. And I know certainly in Thameside, I think the PCNs have committed to to continue this role after um, after the pilot. Julie actually just uh, just reminded me that I hadn't asked uh, Tracy <clears throat> uh, what she did before becoming a cancer care coordinator. Well, Steve, I was cabin crew Were you? for an international airline. Wow. For 23 years, so there's a lot of transferable skills there. Go on then, transferable um, skills. So, you know... You're making me injured and tonic. <laughs> that as well, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, there's, a, there's a, a lot of transferable skills. And I think for non-clinical people listening to this, I think, you know, you've... You can do the. You can do this job. You, there might be whatever you've done in 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 your past, or whatever role that you've played, or whatever. There's a lot of transferable skills that we don't realise that we have until we're placed in this position, and you can do it. You know, um, there's yes, there's a clinical aspect to the job, but then I've, I'm I'm well supported. Um, you know, from a clinical aspect. Julie being my clinical lead on this. So, but if you've got the people skills, you know, it's it's a role that's that's well worth doing. That's actually a really important point, Julie, isn't it? Because a big part of, of these four podcasts we've been doing on, on the workforce has been, the sort of recurring theme has been, you know, that there are uh, options out there for developing new skills, for retraining, for going and having a go at something else, for, you know, and within that, there'll be loads of transferable skills across all sorts of different roles across, you know, across GM, not just in cancer, actually, but uh, other healthcare areas. Absolutely. And and for me, with the right support and the right training, which was provided by um, GM, which has been invaluable, communication skills. And if a person's got compassion and a desire to support people through the cancer journey, then with that support, it can be a really valuable asset. And yeah, it doesn't have to be that you work in the health service to take on a role like a cancer care coordinator. Absolutely not. Thank you very much all. So this episode, as, as we've already said, is all about new roles in the workforce. And in part two, we're going to talk about the role of physician associates. Uh, in a moment, I'll be talking to Stephanie Ogden, who's a consultant dermatologist and the skin, uh, skin cancer lead for GM Cancer, and David Harnett, who is a physician associate. Uh, but first, uh, Jess Doxy, uh, you are the program lead for the workforce and education at GM Cancer. Jess, uh, could you just explain a little bit about what a physician associate is and why they're so important? Yeah, thanks, Steve. So 
Physician associates, um, they're medically trained. They're a generalist healthcare professional who work alongside um, professionals such as consultants, junior doctors and clinical nurse specialists. And they provide medical care as an integral part of that multidisciplinary team. So they're a relatively new role um, and an underutilised part of the workforce. But as they're trained in that medical model, they've been shown to be a real asset in other specialities outside of cancer. So within the um, within the workforce and education work programme that we have here at the Alliance, one of our strategic activities was to pilot the role of the physician associate in cancer services to address gaps in the workforce and support capacity and demand challenges. Um, and this ambition was in line with the NHS long-term plan and the people plan, which sets out that multi-professional clinical teams will be the foundation of, of the future workforce. So we know in Greater Manchester that we don't have an adequate supply of traditional cancer roles, so we need to deliver new operating models for workforce. Um, and with large numbers of physician associate graduates, we saw that opportunity to pilot a physician associate roles um, across various different cancer pathways. And, and we were the first Cancer Alliance to do that as well. So we're kind of three years on now from the first time that we did that. The role of the physician associate has been piloted across nine different cancer pathways. They've been shown to be a real asset in supporting new ways of working. Um, and what's really important to say as well is that this is a role to complement um, the current workforce and current clinical teams to deliver that patient care. It's certainly not about sort of trying to replace anybody at all. It's, it's just about us thinking about different ways of working and different roles that, that can really complement that cancer service delivery. Um, so the latest pilot that we've got here now is, is within the skin pathway, um, which, is, which has been really successful. Uh, why are they underutilised? Um, it's because they're a new role. They've they've had quite um quite a lot of success with it over in the states, but it's not something that we'd ever really done in this country. Um, so it's the, it's that medical model training that they come out of university and then come into um, various different um, formats within healthcare, but just not something that we'd ever really done within cancer services in this country. Um, so it was just a, a new way of thinking about how we can utilise that and how we can just work a bit differently for the benefit of, of cancer delivery. Uh, we'll talk to David in a moment about, about his pathway into this uh, this role, but uh, just kind of very broadly, who can who can be a physician associate and how do you become one? Um, so it's it's a university training model um, to go through. I think David could probably answer this question a bit better than me in terms of his training. Um, but but it's um, it, it's a university training model. There's then different options about. Um, we did pilot what's called a preceptorship within the urology um, cancer pathway, which was for newly qualified physician associates coming into the cancer workforce to to have that um, first supportive year. They usually come in at a band six level um, and then progress to a band seven after that preceptorship year. So we've piloted that. Um, there's other um, sort of uh, models where if, if we have a more experienced um, physician associate, then it, the banding could look different in that. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of the training route, it's probably David who can answer that better than me. <laughs> That's a really good chance actually to bring in uh, uh, Steph and David. David, do you want to just sort of just explain then your, your background, how you became... Uh, should we call him a PA rather than keep saying physician associate? Uh, how did you become a PA? What's your background and uh, what training have you had? So I did biomedical science as my um, first degree. Um, as sort of Jess alluded to, the physician associate course is a postgraduate course where you have to have done a relevant life science degree first. So I'd already done um, my biomedical science degree, 
had worked for a short period as a biomedical scientist in biochemistry and haematology. Um, then I did my physician associate course at Leeds, um, which was two years um, full-time course um, with a lot of placement time um, across both years as well in primary and secondary care. Um, when I first qualified, I worked for two years um, in a rotational post um, across a few different specialties, including dermatology. Um, and then after those two years, I went to work in A&E, uh, initially full-time, and then after around a year, I dropped to part-time A&E and also did part-time GP alongside that. So I was doing a split role at that point, um, during which time I was also a physician associate ambassador um, for West Yorkshire. Um, and then um, almost a year ago, um, I changed over to dermatology over at Salford, where I am now. You're, you're a busy man, David. You've got a lot of different hats. But um, how do you think that kind of... A broad experience in your training how do you think that um, has helped you with the role? Um, well I think specifically for my dermatology role I think that and I don't this is unique to physician associate course I think it's similar to medical courses well you don't get that much dermatology content and that much dermatology teaching and I think because of the time pressure and everything else that's going on it's one of those things that often gets a little bit overlooked and brushed over um, so I didn't really have any dermatology experience or knowledge when I started uh, beyond what anyone else would have. And then I did a rotational job um, in dermatology for six months in my first two years, um, which really sort of sparked my interest and thought this is a specialty that I would like to be in long term. I think it's a really interesting specialty where there's um, sort of loads of different facets you can go down. It's nice as a mix of sort of um, medical and surgical as well. Um, so, so that opportunity to undertake a rotational post in dermatology is what really sort of sparked my interest in the specialty. Um, I think when I was doing GP as well, you do see a lot of skin-related presentations in general practice. And I think that because it's something that isn't necessarily always taught or understood well, um, it's not something that people necessarily feel confident in. Um, so I sort of made a special effort to um, go to some special like dermatology teaching online when there was opportunities for that locally because um, it was something that I really had an interest in and um, so those sort of online opportunities I think um, are much more broadly available after COVID. It was really a good opportunity for me to build on my knowledge in a way that wasn't sort of readily accessible before um, and then obviously when the dermatology permanent post came up I decided that's that's what I wanted to do and head in that direction. So uh, practically speaking, then, what does a typical day, if there is such a thing, for a PA look like? So in dermatology at the moment, I'm mainly focused on skin cancer work, as I've mentioned, through the cancer pathway. So um, my job plan at the moment is mostly um, two weight clinics and minor surgery lists. Um, and I think when I first started, I was sort of a lot more supervised and becoming more independent in those a year down the line, building on my skills and what I can do. Um, reducing the sort of supervision demand from consultants as well. Let's bring you in now, Steph. Um, how big a role do well does David, but people like David, play in in the skin cancer pathway in your team? Thanks, Steve. So David's the first physician associate in dermatology in Greater Manchester. So it really is um, a new role for us, um, and we have, as David said, focused on the skin cancer pathway. And I must say. 
He's been a fantastic addition to the team. There's a national shortage of dermatology specialists. And so we've been looking at new ways of working to make sure patients can be seen and managed promptly. And David, as you were saying, works from the beginning of the cancer pathway right through to the end. So he'll see new patients presenting in clinic with a referral from the general practitioner with a potential skin cancer. He operates on the patients, so to remove the skin cancers, and he'll also see patients for follow-up after a skin cancer diagnosis to discuss treatment plans uh, and organise long-term follow-up. So he's involved from start to finish. He works so flexibly within the team as well, so, you know, stepping in to do extra operating lists as he did yesterday, for example, and it just adds further support. It means that we can see patients more promptly, uh, the pathway runs smoothly, and it's just been a great addition. That's actually what I was going to ask, ask next in terms of the benefit to patients. What do, what do PAs bring to, uh, bring to the patient experience? So it's just, you know, increasing that capacity, Steve, you know, so that we can see patients more promptly. We can get more patients through the system uh, in terms of first appointment. Uh, we can get more patients operated on uh, in a timely way. And we can see patients for follow-up appropriately, you know, as the guidelines would recommend. Um, to just explain some of the. I don't want to get too much into the the the, the shortages, but explain some of the pressures that you've got in your in your team, and and just how you know how big a part um, PAs could play in in alleviating some of those pressures. So it's a national issue, um, as in many specialties uh, and dermatology is particularly affected. Um, so there's a lot of unfilled consultant posts across across the country. Um, and, you know, as you know, training uh, a consultant takes a good number of years, uh, particularly if you're thinking from start of medical school. So you can't grow a workforce overnight when there's a shortage. Um, skin cancer diagnoses have been increasing. So referrals into the hospital are increasing as well. And we need to expand the workforce to help see those patients and uh, the physician associate role has proven really beneficial in helping to expand the workforce and support the consultant workforce. David, is this a uh, like a long term thing for you, or is or is or is the role of a PA um, something that leads on to another role, or you know, is a is a sort of rung on the ladder, if you will? So I, I think for me, I think I see myself staying in dermatology sort of longer term as a physician associate. Um, <laughs> Good to hear, Steph. I know he has to say that. <laughs> um, but I think that there is opportunity for development within the physician associate role. So obviously, think about sort of progression and how that would look um, is is difficult because you don't have sort of someone's existing model to copy. I think if you go into a job as sort of if you sort of do medical degree, you know what the career progression looks like. If you um, sort of enter sort of specialist nurse pathways, you know what that looks like have been in place for a longer time. So I think part of this pros and cons for the physician associates, so while there's not that model to sort of follow and build yourself on, I think you can sort of create the job to what you want it to look like to an extent and sort of pursue what, what you want to do a little bit more. Um, and I think there's definitely opportunity for sort of development long term within a specialty for a physician associate. Like we say, taking on sort of more responsibilities within the team, um, reducing sort of your supervision requirement and sort of broadening sort of your knowledge. So I think within dermatology, although at the moment I'm focused primarily on skin cancers, I think if I was to stay in the specialty sort of longer term, uh, there's a, a breadth of knowledge which I could uh, sort of pursue uh, to keep me interested for the longer term as well. 
Um, I think when we talk about sort of physician associates and progression, I think those sort of more senior physician associate roles are starting um, to come out. So I know there are um, sort of job matched job roles uh, through agenda for change for sort of band eight a physician associates now, um, not just for sort of lead physician associates and management roles, but also purely for clinical roles. So there is definitely longer term progression. Um, and I think when we're saying about sort of flexibility of the role, I think depend on sort of what the individual wants as well. If if they're happy to sort of maintain it, the sort of same level of providing the same sort of service provision they are, then people have the flexibility to stay at that level as well. You don't have to sort of try and move on and up if, if you would rather just stay what you're doing. It's a very flexible sort of job role like that. So if your service need is for one particular thing and you have a person who's really happy to stay doing that, then there's an opportunity to do that as well. There's no sort of progression for them so no pressure for them to move upwards sort of as if you had sort of um, a junior doctor who you know is going to move further on in training you could keep hold of that person and um, doing that role if they're happy to do so as well yeah. and so i think it is sort of quite flexible in that way so steph kind of looking forward a little bit david's the first one but how useful could this role be in in the future the next five or ten years you know i imagine i imagine some of those pressures aren't going to go away overnight are they they're going to be you know constant pressures for you know for a good oh, i don't know goodness knows how long yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can only see it expanding, um, Steve, over the over the coming years. And certainly, um, David's role in Greater Manchester has generated a lot of interest in the dermatology community. You know, we've shared the learning with our colleagues um, across the region, uh, and there is an appetite to increase it. And it's um, you know, it's just about providing that right training environment and supportive environment to allow someone to develop their skills and then become a more um, independent practitioner, but working in a supervised and supported environment. So um, I think it will only expand. Jess, before we finish, uh, just uh, very broadly in these in these four episodes we've done on, on the workforce, uh, we've talked loads about... Uh, different ways that people are getting you know really good experience in different specialities across you know across the whole uh, the whole region of GM how important do you think that is in terms of you know building a really versatile you know really experienced you know really good workforce um yeah I, I think um I think it is really important I mean and we've we've piloted various different ways of working to try and support that as well um so things such as we you know we've done um, different um uh, different models to try and support those who are aspiring to get into cancer. Uh, we've got the National Digital Staff Passport to aid that mobilisation around Greater Manchester as well and to be able to provide those opportunities to the workforce. Um, so I think it is really important. I think the other thing, just to come on to um, back to what Steph said there as well about, you know, we, we know that we've got a huge number of patients coming into Greater Manchester. People are living longer with cancer. They're living older. They've got greater comorbidities. So the more that we can provide that um, upskilling opportunities for our workforce and to really fly the flag for a career in cancer, um, that's, that's definitely our role within the workforce education team to do that. Um, there's also, um, I know that I think you've done a, an episode on it already about the Greater Manchester Cancer Academy as well, providing that equitable access to um, cancer education for our workforce. So providing the opportunity to, um, to upskill within the, the clinical side, but also you know making sure that that education is there for people CPD as well. That's really important, David, I guess, isn't it? In terms of like looking at your, your progression, you want to 
you know uh, uh, selfishly you want to be in an area you know where where you can get the most progression and, and actually having all these options uh, uh for different specialities different training options different um you know different ways of learning must be really exciting yeah, and I think that sort of feeds into sort of finding what's right for sort of each individual. It's good to provide sort of a variety of pathways people can go down. I think, like Steph touched on, um, it's really important that you're in a sort of strongly supervised, supported environment. I think I've been quite fortunate that I have been really well supported within my department. Um, so I think if sort of physician associates can see that you want to invest in them and are motivated to keep them in your department, then they'll stay longer if you provide them with those opportunities for the longer term. Thank you so much to all my guests and thank you to you for listening to this episode and the fourth episode of our Workforce series on the GM Cancer podcast. We'll be back very soon with some more great episodes. And In the meantime, if you have enjoyed this episode, why don't you go back and have a listen to all the other ones we've done so far. We've done loads, uh, not just this series on the workforce, but we did a, a previous series uh, looking at all different aspects of cancer services right here in Greater Manchester. So enjoy those and we'll be back very soon. Bye.